Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Entree Architect membership is built for you, the small firm entrepreneur architect. Monthly training, full access to all our business resources, and a private member forum powered by Slack. Come build a better business with hundreds of your fellow entrepreneur architects and me at Entree Architect Membership. Enroll now free for 30 days at EntreeArchitect.com. My name is Mark R. LePage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 246, and this week I'm with Rod Kaczynski of Yardstick Studio, and I want to know why he went from construction-based design build back to being a traditional architect. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and so much more at rcat.com. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work that you love. And Revit Rocketship. Learn Revit the fast and easy way with a powerful online course developed by the guys over at F9 Productions. From first-time users to seasoned pros, Revit Rocketship will show you how. Rod Kaczynski, welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me back again. It's great to have you back. If if Rod's name and his voice sound familiar, it's because he was just here just a few weeks ago. Uh, I was talking about how to become a certified residential architect. He was here with uh, Rand Saltner of 
Architects Creating Homes. They were talking all about the organization and how you can become a uh, certified residential architect. That was episode 239, if you want to head back there and hear all about that. EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 239. Uh, Rod's an architect based in Denver, Colorado. Uh, He built his firm as a design-build firm and recently made the decision to go back to a traditional architecture firm. And and I want to know why. He mentioned it in that other episode, and I'm like, well, we have to have that conversation (laughs) because that is an interesting one because I hear constantly all through the Entree Architect community of architects who are practicing traditionally and want to get into design-build uh, they think that there's more control and there's there's this sort of the panacea of the profession there. And uh, and I want to talk to the man who's who's done it and has decided to go back to a traditional firm. Um, but before we go there, Rod, Rod, I want you to go back to your origin story. I know you talked okay. a little bit about it in the last episode. But yeah. let's let's set the set the uh, the give give people some context here. Where did you discover about architecture? You can go back as far as you want to go back. And tell that story of, of what inspired you to become an architect to where you are now. Okay. Um, yeah, because I didn't go all the way back, I think, the last time we spoke. So I'm going to go all the way back to when I was seven years old, I guess. Yeah, cool. It's like yeah. um, kind of where it really began. Um, my parents moved to a like bedroom community, Fredericksburg, Virginia, south of Washington, D.C. Before that, we had lived up in Alexandria when I was seven years old. And they bought an old Victorian home. Uh in, in sort of like a historic area of Fredericksburg, um, because that's where they could afford. And they spent the rest of my childhood remodeling and refinishing that house. Um, I, I think when I graduated from high school and left home at 18, uh, they still had two rooms to go. Um, so from seven until 18, I pretty much spent, my childhood at drywall dust. And I I mean, I remember, you know, stripping all of the old Victorian woodwork with like 13 layers of paint. And there's probably some sort of like thing I could blame my parents for. If I know it was lead paint and all of that stuff, but you know, I grew up in that environment. I mean, I remember having the floor up and having to walk across like a two by 10 in the kitchen in the morning. Cause my dad was redoing the plumbing, like as a bridge to get across, you know, that type of thing. And, um, and so I grew up kind of, you know, uh, learning as a kid how to and my dad wasn't a, a contractor or anything. He was an engineer. Um, and so he would just figure it out as he went as well. So I was doing that. So that's kind of how I got into tools and home building. And, you know, I got to learn how a house was put together. I mean, we basically gutted every room of that house in yeah. my childhood. So you saw the guts um, of it all and, and understood oh, yeah. at a young age of how, how, how houses go together. Again, replacing all the old lead pipes with copper pipes. And um, and uh, on the other side of that, my grandfather was a plumber uh, out in Illinois. And um, I'd go out on vacations and and ride in the truck with him and go on service calls and everything. And then as I got older, when I was um, like early teen years, um, I'd actually go out and work in the summers. Um, And I I think I worked for two bucks an hour or something like that. And, uh, so I'd stay with him and, and, you know, he taught me how to sweat copper pipes and fold tin. And, you know, he was, he was an HVAC guy too. So, um, so, so I was kind of hands-on and tool, tool oriented pretty early on. And, uh, I think I had my first job cleaning, um, construction sites, you know, sweeping, uh, with a framing crew when I was like 12 years old, my neighbor was building a, a guest house out behind their house. And, uh, I wandered over and the guys would just 
pay me a few bucks on Friday afternoons. That was back when you could burn all the cuts, yeah, <laughs> you know, right. all the yeah. waste. So as a 12 year old kid, you're like, you know, I yeah. catch, hey, yeah, I get to build a big Friday right. fire on Friday and burn all the old cut <laughs> and get paid for it. This is a dream. And this was right in town. I mean, I couldn't even imagine that these days. Yeah, yeah that's how that, you know, you didn't have roll offs back then. You just burned everything. 12 year old so, and fire and wood on construction. Yeah. I it's like a dream come true. Yeah. Oh, it was a great, it was a great, it was all through the whole summer there, I think for, well, maybe not the whole summer, but, uh, yeah, you make a few bucks. And, um, so that's how I kind of got into it. And then as I, um, I took a couple of years off after high school and, and some of my jobs throughout those couple of years was framing houses, um, uh, down in North Carolina, I was a lifeguard. And then I also picked up a framing job. And then all through college, I worked for a framer. I went to Montana state university up in Bozeman and I worked for a framer, mostly during the summers. And then in the winters, I would go in and work at a hardware store or something. So I, my origins were kind of in the construction side. Um, and I'll tell you in North Carolina, when I was framing there, that's when I really started to think about becoming an architect. I had, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do in college. And I had seen, you know, the contractor and the architect on these custom homes that they were building. And I was working there yelling at one another. And I, it just, you know, I still remember thinking there's gotta be a better way to do this because yeah, yeah. these guys are just screaming. Um, and then, you know, they'd argue and, 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 and fight about it and, you know, who's a paying for this and that. And, um, so, as I, as I was working through that, and I also decided that I didn't want to be 65 years old pounding nails still. So I better do something so I have some options. Yeah. Um, and that's how I ended up going back to architecture school. So, um, and, and you know, so I, I kind of went through school, you know, with the builder's mind frame rather than just the designers, uh, you know, from the other end of it. Yeah. The more of the practical side, not the artistic side, I guess, at first. So, so that's how I kind of got into it. And, um, when I got out of school, um, I bumped into two guys that had a design build firm down here doing some custom, uh, semi custom, like spec homes for some clients, uh, as a design build firm. And I, at that point, I mean, that would have been 1995. I didn't even know that it kind of existed. And how I got the job is they weren't even looking for an intern. Really. They were looking for somebody to help them trim out a couple of houses doing casework. So I was like, well, I got my tools. I'll, uh, and you know, I can come do that. And, uh, pretty quickly they had me start, they were working with like some old antiquated, like Cadvance or something like that software. And I'd start helping out doing some of the detailed drawings over time. And, um, eventually I partnered up in that firm. Um, and as one of them retired, I became a full partner. And, uh, those are the guys I kind of went through with until my partner retired last year. Um, and so it was a pretty good run of 23 years of, of me being involved. That company actually started in 1990 by the original uh, architect, Mark Collins. Um, and uh, it, it was great. Um, but I did learn a lot through that 23 years. And, uh, you know, um, as we grew and got bigger and bigger um, and as I got kind of older and older, I kind of realized, you know, things that I wanted out of my life that that was going sort of the wrong direction. Um, it's a lot of work to run a design build firm. There's a lot of, a lot of moving parts. When you, when you were working in the design build firm, were you working more on the design end or the build end? Cause you have, ex so you how, had experience in both at that point. So, yeah. So how we did it, all of us were kind of tool junkies, all three of us. So even when I was, when I was just sort of their intern, I would say, um, 
uh, before I sort of started moving into a leadership role, um, we all kind of wore all hats, um, which worked great for Was everybody architects and builders. Yeah. We are all three of us were architects and it was literally just the three of us. That's um, interesting. Yep. and we would, we would all do everything. So, you know, in an ideal world, like say one of us would design a house and then he would move on and go GC that project through to completion while one of the other ones, would which one of other one of us would start doing the next one and kind of cycle them through that way. In reality, it never happens that way. <laughs> like, but you know, schedules get pushed off and things get thrown out of whack, and you're constantly trying to move and shift. And um, ultimately, what ended up happening was um, I sort of sort of gravitated more towards the design side, and would come and fill in out there in the field when necessary. And my partner Kingsley, who's the partner that just retired. He ended up being more of the GC side, even though and then he'd come back in if we had like a heavy workload in the office, you know, so that kind of thing. But what eventually happened is we all got older and, you know, you're using we made a jump about I don't even know if it was 10 years ago when we jumped to Revit. That was that was the big shift. Um, You know, you're out in the field a lot and his drafting skills and, and, you know, computer skills were, would go, would diminish over those years right, just uh, from non-experience. Well, yeah, you just don't, it, you, you don't use it, you lose it. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And you miss a couple of uh, versions of, you know, you're out on a, you know, a 7,000 square foot home building the house and you, you might not be in the office for a year building that thing. You, you miss a version, a whole version of, of, right. of Revit. Get, ru- <laughs> you know? get rusty. Yeah. And you get, start getting rusty. And so, what ended up really ultimately happening is uh, Mark retired. The first partner retired in 2001, and I became a 50-50 partner with with, the, uh, with Kingsley. And um, and then he never really made that leap to Revit. That was the big thing. We both talked about doing it. We, the, I really enjoyed it. I had been kind of doing both. Up until that point, we were just doing AutoCAD um, 2D stuff. And um you know, he 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 kind of got it for a while there, but then you know, you're out in the field and you just sort of forget about it. And so what ended up happening is he ended up pretty much being relegated to being the GC, mm-hmm. and I was doing all of the stuff. And well, then we grew. I mean, we we kept growing and bringing in people and those sort of things too. Was he happy out in the field? Did, was he happy yeah, with, with so. not designing? I think so. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, both of those jobs have their satisfaction to them. Yeah. Um, uh, I think one of the things is once, once it got so frustrating, just trying to translate stuff into him being relegated to passing almost all drafting off to an intern, mm-hmm. it just wasn't quite as appealing to him, you know, because he could sketch it out and do all of that, that sort of side of things and had a wonderful sense of proportion and, and all of that. But then when he wasn't sort of completing it, I think it does lose some of its you know, appeal when you just have to, here you go. Now draw it up. (laughs) Was it, it sounds like that firm sort of evolved into what it was. Was there ever any sort of formal structure put in place that this is where we want to go and how we want to get there and who's going to do what, or did it sort of just always sort of evolve to where, where it landed? Yeah. No. And there wasn't any, and and some of that was just, that's what I inherited was a, a firm that was run, you know, when Mark started that, he was pretty much he had a small little office in downtown Denver and it was just him. And um, he was just it, there was no formal business model or anything. He was just working away and, right. and doing his thing. And then he partnered with King the year Kingsley the, the year before I joined. Um, and, and, you know, 
for sitting down and formally sort of structuring. And I know how it totally happens. You're busy. Yeah. We've always been busy. We've never not had work. We don't advertise, we don't do anything. And it's like, Hey, things are great. Like what the hell would you need to change anything yeah, for? Exactly. That's um, why I asked that question because I think the, yeah. ma- the majority of architects do that. They sort of start, they, they find some early yeah. success. They find a niche that they're good at. They keep growing that it gets bigger. They hire people and they just, they keep growing and growing and growing, and the company just evolves into whatever it becomes. Whatever it is. And sometimes right. that works, and sometimes it's really frustrating for the rest of your life. And so right. that's that's why I wanted to bring that up, because I wanted to make sure that others heard whether that was the case or yep. not. Because I'm hearing in your story lots of passion and, and good times, but I'm also hearing some frustration, that there were some well, frustrating parts of, of how that evolved. Yeah, there are definitely some frustrating parts, because... Um, as I became a full partner that started to become some of my thoughts, okay, great. I'm going to make this a legitimate business. It never really has been. It's just been three guys doing a thing. We've been doing it great. And, you know, through those years, while it was just the three of us really leading it, um, you know, we'd have a few interns here and there, both on, both on the, um, architectural side. And then I would say like carpentry interns, almost like guys that would come and help us in the field. So you were kind of running both sides of that business. Now, the other thing that threw another level of complexity into that whole thing was, you know, like I said, we were all tool junkies. We also ran our own shop. Um, we were at, at first we were in this little warehouse building down behind Coors Field in downtown Denver back when it was cheap down there. Um, and uh, eventually we moved through a couple of different um, offices where we unified the shop and the office together. Um, and the shop kept growing and we kept taking on more, it, which was awesome because I loved that. I love woodworking and we loved the ability to sort of build like a lot of that custom stuff for our projects. Um, and I think it gives you a lot of freedom as an architect to be able to say like, I'm going to design this, uh, let me go down in the shop and prototype up just to make right. sure this works. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it is a lot of freedom to be able to do some of that. Were stuff. those, were those separate companies? Were there three separate no. companies or no, we were just- all running. In fact, for most of those years, we were all running under the same, like, like we didn't even separate out insurances for E&O because we were all, uh, like, and, and our liability on the contractor side. So we were, we were lit because no one could convince us that we needed errors and emissions insurance on our professional side because we'd only build what we were designing. We never designed for anybody else. Right. So there was very little risk that we kind of could see. Like we were obviously, if, as the contractor, weren't going to sue ourselves. Um, and, you know, I don't think we really had that much risk because, you know, if there was a problem out there with the drawings, well, I'd just go back to the office, fix it. And, oh, yeah, we'll just or just take care of it right there out in the field. So um, so there were some benefits to that, because if you're only building your designs and you're not designing for some other firm um, or some other contractor, then, you know, we were able to sort of do some of that stuff and cut corners, I guess. So were you set up as a, as a construction company that did design? Yeah, basically. Yeah. We were set up most because that's where all your liability and risk was and kind of the, like a lot of the moving parts. Um, eventually what we did do is start to separate out as we got more employees and get a little bit more legitimate on the way it was structured in the sense, because, you know, you got workman's comp and all of that kind of stuff. And a guy in the office is going to be way at a different rate than a guy down in the shop that can cut his fingers off. So it made sense to, as we got more and more employees at one point, we were like 18 people. So at that point, people were relegated down. These guys are field guys or shop guys, and you got to track your hours there. And even if we had guys bouncing in forth between, I did have interns over the year and employees that were, you know, 
architecturally trained, but also tool guys. So, at, you know, when we started to get to a certain size, you know, it was like, okay, you got to separate out what these guys tasks are because it, you can't run everybody as a field guy. Right. Um, you have to have some but, sort of organization, some, some structure. Yeah. And, and even though people would bounce around, it's like, okay, if you're in the office, you got to track your hours as office hours. Cause we get audited every year for workman's comp and liability. So we got to, you know, go through all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, so it, it kind of started to evolve, and it is my desire to sort of make it a legitimate business instead of just three guys doing what we did well and kind of just trudging through and figuring it out. I mean, there were at, at a few points there were other that I sort of inherited. They had these guys that would come in, little accountant guys that would come in like once a week and clean up QuickBooks. You know, it was like that. Yeah. It was that informal, right. you know. Like, and and eventually I started doing it and going, God, but like we've got. Home Depot in here, like three different ways, you know, there was no way to track anything. It's like yeah. Home Depot, the Home Depot, you know, and so, <laughs> you know, it's like, and I just remember that guy would come in and it's like, this guy's just dropping stuff in. There's no organization. There's no way to even track project budgets if we're, you know, going back and looking at the data. So that's when I started to say, Hey, look, I've got a long time in this field and in this career. Um, my two partners were older than me by 15 or 18 years. So, you know, they were, on a different curve of their life, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and had no real interest of figuring this stuff out and putting it together in a more formal organizational method, I guess. Um, so I started to dig into that and we did, you know, we eventually got like a accounting firm that came in and we, you know, spent weeks, if not months, cleaning everything up, getting stuff in there so that we were doing quotes and estimates, you know, that could be linked back to the the expenses and everything. I mean, when I inherited it, everything was just Excel. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. It works great, yeah. but you know, everything was just tracked in Excel. Um, and each of us, whoever was the lead on the job would set up that Excel spreadsheet. However they did, you know, there was no continuity between different projects right. or anything. Yeah. So, um, so that we, I did that over a lot of years and we got it. And that's when Mark had retired, um, Kingsley and I spent a lot of time putting that together and, and, and doing that. And because we had picked up a several big projects over about a six year span and we were taking on employees and, um, some real long-term projects. And so that, that, that also helped formalize it. Mm -hmm. Did you, uh, did you move to QuickBooks or what was the software? We, 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 we were at QuickBooks for a while and then we jumped to that bill quick, bill quick um, yeah. which yeah. was at the time we jumped to it, it was running QuickBooks underneath you know, as sort of a backstory right. kind of software, but then they eventually sort of incorporated it right into the software. And that was done mainly so we could have that interface with, um, uh, you know, hours and the guys could enter their hours and they'd be set up as a user and they could go in there and, and it, that tracking. And that was my whole intent to was to sort of get some better stuff. Um, eventually what happens is when you go through these ebbs and curves, you're going, you know, you got 18 employees, then you're down to 12. And then, you know, it's like you spend more time like taking these guys on and off the, <laughs> the right. software. Um, and we found out eventually as we were sort of starting to wind down that uh, it just wasn't financially worth it for us to pay the expenses of all that that software. And, and now I'm it, like towards the last couple of years, I was just back on because they have that QuickBooks construction, which, right. you know, I, th I, I don't know how long they've had that, but it it pretty much does everything that the bill quick did and it's much simpler and you can just buy a standalone seat and, you know, um, so we kind of went back 
and this was my whole thing in the last few years, just simplifying this because eventually this thing became this huge beast. And that was one of the things behind doing what I'm doing now was this has just gotten, it's almost take, it takes on this life of its own. And it felt like it was running me instead of the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. which is eventually where it got. And I'm just like, I'm done. So, just, so was that the transition? There was a, there was a moment in time that this just got so overwhelming and you had to sort of step back and sort of ask yourself yeah. some questions of where I want to go and where, how, how do I want to get there and make some big decisions? Oh. Yeah. Well, um, there were certainly little things that would gnaw at me through the years. Like I'd have interns come on, work for me for a couple of years get go through the IDP stuff and get their you know get all their IDP and go take their ARE exams which we would pay if they passed and then we had a contract with them that they must stay on for like a year after they got their license and then they could you know had to work for us or they had to reimburse us for the cost of their ARE exams and um you know it was health insurance and all of that stuff so we had a pretty good thing going and then you know a few of them would just leave the the day after a year was up and go start their own firms take all of my contact lists and subs and yeah. that kind of got under my skin a little yeah, bit, sure. you know, um, you know, but that's just the way the world works. I mean, you know, and everybody's got their thing that they've got to do. Um, I guess some of the biggest things were is, as I got bigger on the architecture side and I have like three or four interns working for me, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I was just doing like red line checks and picking up details and I kind of felt, and I've told somebody, other people, this it's finding mistakes in their drawings was like the where's Waldo, you know? So I'd be doing review and it was like a lot harder to find a mistake than just to do it yourself sometimes and make sure it's right. And, yeah. and that was, I think that kind of was the thing that got under my skin with the most was I, all I was doing was ending up trying to find the mistakes, make sure the drawings were correct, you know, cause these are interns and I get it. They don't have as much experience as right. I do. But the other problem was, is I don't, I don't know if this is just generational or if it's always been this way, but you'd start to call people out on their mistakes and Hey, you've got to correct this. You got to go back. I had several that would just walk out, um, <laughs> you know, just didn't want to take any pride or ownership in their work. Um, and that may be a more of a reflection of, who I hired. Um, I thought, you know, I did a pretty good job of vetting people through that would be a good fit, but you know, you never know until you kind of get in there. Um, and, and so that my whole life became, well, it felt to me a lot more HR stuff going on mm-hmm. than architecture stuff in my right. life. Right. Um, well, you, like, grew, you grew a business and right. you started formalizing it and, and building some structure to that. And that requires some management. And as a firm owner, that's very often where we land is that we need to manage a firm. And right. and we lose touch with the design side of who we are and the architect side of who we are. And sometimes if you want to grow, sometimes that's where you need to grow until you can build a firm big enough that you can sort of have other people manage right. that There's stuff a- and then go back to the design stuff that you like. Or you have to make a decision to say, I just don't want that big structure. I don't want that big organization. And I'm just going to go back and get small again and, and do what I want to do. Right. And, and and there's definitely that gap that I acknowledged at a certain point where you're a small firm and you're trying to grow. You're not big enough to sort of hire the HR department and right. a manager and everything. So you do take on all those hats. Um, and then there's that target of getting big enough to where that's feasible and reasonable to have that huge overhead. But that 
that size of firm is it, it's a big leap from three guys to yeah. probably I'm I'm guessing it's in that 25 to 30 range to really have a fully dedicated HR firm or HR department or hiring people and managers, you know, maybe it doesn't quite have to be that big, but I kind of, I literally drew this out on a, on a, on a dry erase board one afternoon and was like, okay, if I'm the principal and I want to have like one licensed architect under me as a project architect, he probably has, he or she probably has two or three interns so I'm already at a, you know, just me without my other two partners involved. I'm already at like a four or five person company now to, to just do the architecture, just to do the architecture. <laughs> and then this is the other thing that I real, realized over the years about architecture outside or out, about design build firms outside of the fact that schedules are very difficult to stay on track anyway, to try to balance the rhythms of construction and architecture are complete opposite, meaning, you know, like the, you can do the architecture side of a project like in one half or one third of the time that it takes to finish the construction for that same project. Right. And so if you've got those four or five guys working on the architecture side, you've got to have almost twice as many people on the construction side. So automatically your construction side of your company is twice as big as the design side. Um, which means you're primarily a construction company, right? I mean, pretty much. Cause that's where all of the energy and the money goes to manage those employees. Because if, and at that level where you're transitioning, not only am I sort of like the lead architect and maybe I've got an architect underneath of me, that's a project architect, but then, you know, that's a big jump to go hire a full-time GC that's got a supervisor certificate and all of those sort of things. And then all of the licensing and insurance that you've got to do on that side. So if I'm doing that myself, I've probably got two or three superintendents to try to run those few jobs we're pushing through on the architecture side. And you start doing this graph, you know, out there, the company got big really quick. Just if you think about running one or two projects through the company to completion. Um, And then of course we probably cluttered it up a little bit further because I was also running that shop and I did have a shop foreman down there, but, um, you know, that's just like a whole nother entity that you're trying a lot of responsibility, a lot of moving parts. And again, it functions and operates at a different rhythm than even the construction or the architecture because, uh, you know, a project, let's just say like a custom home took a year to build. There's only like a five or eight week period of woodwork going on out there. Well, what do I do with those guys the rest of the year? <laughs> you know, right. so now we're subbing out to other contractors doing their work, and then it just became a whole nother business. So that was another level of complexity. Like, how do we make that? Because a lot of times that shop would just sit idle. You know, I'd send those guys out in the field, and they, you know, yeah. they had to have sort of dual purposes. And um, and the expenses you know, like, don't stop. No, I had six thousand <laughs> square foot shop that wasn't making me any revenue. Yeah. So yeah. that's when I started doing this thing. It's like, okay, we have all these resources we've accumulated over the year that we thought would be great to roll into this business. Now, how do I get all these things like firing on all cylinders? And you start looking at this sort of all these moving parts and how complex that organizational structure had to be. Um, so, it, so it, today, today you're not doing that. So, so no. how did how? Uh, that's a that's a. So, big, big leap from where that was. What you just described yep. is a pretty big company, um, and potentially getting much, much bigger. To a decision to say, "I'm not going there. I'm going here." Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here 
at Entree Architect, RCAP, FreshBooks, and Revit Rocketship. For years, when I needed information on manufacturers' products, I headed straight to Google. And then I sifted through the hundreds of results to find the one or two that might be the link to the product that I'm looking for. And more often than not, that link was not what I was seeking. It was outdated or didn't meet my requirements. So I went back to the search engine and started all over. This could take all afternoon to find the one or the two or the three products that I needed. Does that sound familiar? I'm sure it does. There is a better way. RCAT.com. Find what you're looking for in seconds. Building product information, BIM, CAD, and custom specifications using their exclusive tool, SpecWizard. And keep it all online in one place using their cloud-based project organization tool, Charette. So make RCAT a part of your efficient project workflow. Just type entrearchitect.com slash RCAT so they know that you came from us. Put that into your internet browser and add it to your favorites and then visit RCAT for every project. Find what you need fast and make more money on every project. EntreeArchitect.com slash RCAT. That's EntreeArchitect.com slash A-R-C-A-T. Our friends at FreshBooks have been supporting us here at the Entree Architect podcast for a long time now. They've been a platform sponsor for well over two years. So thank you, FreshBooks. So you've heard me talk about FreshBooks a lot here at the Entree Architect podcast. Every episode, in fact, for quite a long time now. But did you know how FreshBooks actually was created? How it came to life? Well, it happened when their founder, Mike, accidentally saved over an invoice. And he kind of snapped. He was using Microsoft Word to bill his clients. He had studied accounting at school, but found that every accounting software on the market was built for some other business, not for him. He was frustrated. He wanted something different, something better, something that was designed for him, a self-employed professional. So he built it. Today, millions of people use FreshBooks, and on average, FreshBooks customers save about 16 hours a month. 16 hours a month. What could you do with an extra 16 hours? Getting started with FreshBooks is ridiculously easy. Most people send their first invoice seconds after starting their free trial. And the same goes for time tracking, managing expenses, collaborating with contractors, and viewing financial reports. So give FreshBooks a try. It's free for 30 days. Just visit entrearchitect.com FreshBooks. And then let them know that we sent you by sharing Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's entrearchitect.com slash freshbooks to access your free, unlimited 30-day trial. Revit Rocketship is a new online course developed by our friends Alex Gore and Lance Psycho over at F9 Productions. They're the guys from the Inside the Firm podcast. Their new online course will get you up and running with Revit fast and easy. It's completely different from anything else available online. You're going to learn how to model in Revit just like it gets built. And you won't even need to start from scratch. Alex provides you with a complete ready-to-go template to get started. It's the actual Revit template that his firm, F9 Productions, has developed over the past decade and uses today. He'll walk you through their proven method of developing a Revit model and end up with a completed set of construction drawings that you can use for your portfolio or reference 
when you develop your next project. Revit Rocketship is based on years of experience using the software and teaching Revit at the university level, so they know how to get you up and running fast and easy. I love that Alex and Lance are sharing their knowledge, and I want you to check out Revit Rocketship. Register today for Revit Rocketship at entrearchitect.com slash Revit. That's entrearchitect.com slash R-E-V-I-T. RCAT, Fresh Books, and Revit Rocketship. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entre Architect community. Today you're working by yourself as an architect. And so yeah. what's the transition so, from that to where you are now? Okay, so so what ended up really happening, I think it had to do a lot and and, and uh, with the economy, the way things are right now, we're super busy. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole ind- all industries are firing right now, and Denver, is a co- and it's been doing that for several years. Um, you just could, there's just not a there's so much work out there, um, and because of that, it's just like this drive to the bottom, like everybody mm-hmm. trying to get stuff cheaper and cheaper and beating you up. And um, th- a lot of times that can be frustrating. I mean, you've got guys out there that we're competing against that aren't even licensed, just doing stuff without permits. And, you know, clients are like, well, this guy said he can do it for half the price. So you're competing against that a little bit. And um, what ended up happening was my partner and I have always talked and we had, we'd sit down regularly about like where he was in his career and where I was in my career. He's obviously he was 15 years older than me. And um, he, he was he was grumpy for a while and because of all these this pressure on the construction side. And I was like, you just don't seem like you're he, he had always said he had like five or six more years left. And um, he, he had a particularly rough month one month. And I was like, you know, you're old enough to retire. Why, why are you still doing this? You're stressed. Do, do you want to keep doing it? And he went away with his wife and, and he says, I don't know what I would do if I retired anyway. And he came back because uh, he wasn't even thinking about retiring. And he goes, you know what? You're right. I think I'm ready. I, yeah. I just don't need this stress in my life. And so instead of having five or six years my original intent was I can keep putting in the 80 hour weeks for another five or six years because then we can build this company up to 25, 30 employees yep. and I can sell this because it's really a marketable, you know, we've got like 30, uh, 20 uh, some odd years of client base. We're completely busy. We're doing this much revenue a year. All of a sudden he goes, yeah, I'm retiring in six months. <laughs> and uh, so I'm like, well, I don't have five years to build this thing up. Like, what are we looking at? Like, what do I have the ability to sort of build up and do in six months? And really what it came down to was uh, at that point, my, my wife and I had something to talk about because here I was with a, guy, a partner for 23 years. It was wonderful. And do I want to go out and take on another partner and keep doing this? There'll be some obviously some painful transition stuff, bringing on somebody new and working through what that looks like. And if, well, you're a partner with your marriage, but all partnerships are marriages, (laughs) you know, um, to a certain extent, you are, you are entangled probably more with a partner than you are with a wife because of all the stuff financially that you're just involved in insurances and all that. And so, um, so when I had that six month prospect to look on, we, my wife and I went and said, well, what do you want to keep doing? What really inspires you about this industry? And don't get me wrong. I love that. I think the design build delivery method is a wonderful way to bring products to a client. <laughs> there is a lot of autonomy and control over that project and over the product and the quality. Um, it's just all of the 
all of the management side of it, it takes a very special person and employee to be able to do that stuff because you end up wearing all of those hats. And those people are very rare and far and few between. And so you start plugging in all of these people to take care of um, the, the very specific little elements of each phase of that. And those people like interns are just doing drafting, you know, and you've got a project architect that's just doing architecture and you've got a project manager that's out on the job site, just doing supervision. They can't jump around and it doesn't leave you a lot of flexibility. And I was seeing a lot of, it's tough. You know, you're like, shit, now I got to keep, sorry, you got to keep these guys really busy all the time. And you could see a lot of inefficiencies happening. It's very, it's very problematic to keep all of those different types of people fully functioning at all times, you know, eight hours, 10 hours a day, you know, five days a week. Um, That's hard. So, so what I ended up deciding at the end of that was um, I really love the design side. I love meeting and working with clients and working through that, um, the most, um, out of all the stuff that I've done over the years. And how do I make that a new business that I'm going to be happy with? Um, and you know, I think we had 14 different types of insurance that we had to have as a design build firm. Wow. Um, you know, cause we had trucks and trailers and all of the kind of stuff. Um, and then, and, 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 all of those sort of things. And then I started thinking about it. I was like, I've got two now. <laughs> I really won my E&O insurance, but I, I put my car underneath my, my company. So I've got auto insurance too. Yep. So, so, but it's just me. Um, and, and so like just that scale factor of simplicity alone was really appealing to me. Um, how long so, did it take you to make that decision? Cause that's a, that's a uh, huge went, decision. That's a life decision. Yeah, it was, it was, so, so it, you know, I think in some way I'd already made it subconsciously, um, uh, but I hadn't really verbalized it. And so we, we had gone on vacation to the, uh, back, our folks are all from the East coast. We had gone back East to the beach. And so sitting through a lot of margaritas and, and Corona's, you know, on the beach, uh, just talking it through and like, what are all the ramifications? And the truth is, don't get me wrong. I mean, we ran a very successful business that I could have kept going and been very successful at it in perpetuity. I have no question that that would have kept going. And really what it came down to is like, I'm, I'm 48 this year. You know, I don't know if it's a midlife crisis thing or whatever, you know, it is a transition point. I've got kids that are going to be in high school for another, you know, five years, uh, you know, so it, that, and that hap- that's tomorrow. Uh, if for anybody that does not have, <laughs> it goes fast. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I'm so, 48 too. And I have the same kids in the same place. So I, I yeah, can sympathize with exactly where you're sitting right uh, now. I've got one driving already and it's just like, oh, I, you know what? So what does it look like when our kids are out of the house? You know, hopefully knock on wood. Um, and, uh, and, and so I knew what that path looked like, um, as, as continuing as a design build firm and, and I could do it and it would be, it would still be successful and we'd have great projects. But part of it was, I knew what that path looked like, Yeah. you know, I mean, so it's like, it wasn't really challenging you know, I've been doing it for so long. So that was kind of the other side of it. How much, and, how much did your family and your relationship with your kids and your wife play into that decision? Uh, I even talked to my kids. I mean, my kids are 13 and 15 and like, like that, that year they would, you know, year, it was a year and a half ago. We kind of made, well, almost two years ago that we made the decision and they all a hundred percent, they would support me. Um, 
Now, uh, we did own the building that we were running our business out of. My partner and I, we had to financially separate ourselves. So that was another big portion of the decisions. It's like, well, what do I do? Get a partner to come in and buy out my partner as and the building that we own as another entity? Because the building was actually owned by another entity that we had formed. Yeah. Um, to keep that level of separation there. So it was it would have been complex. And so looking through all of the logistical challenges of bringing on like a new partner and then just seeing what that future would look like, you know, it's just like, God, this is just this just start from scratch at some point yeah. seems so appealing. Um, so, so that's what we decided to do. And, you know, because we were selling the building, you know, that takes a lot of pressure off when you have a little bit of, of capital there that you don't have to, you know, put food on the table with a project, you know, yeah. like that month. Um, so, so, so that was other part of the decision. Like, great, we're going to sell the building. And that gives me a little time to launch this new entity and figure out and get my feet underneath me. So that, you know, that may not be available to everybody, but, um, I was fortunate that that happened that way. How much time did it take to go from the, the other firm to, to starting the new firm and so, sort of make that transition from one to the other? Um, so I'll tell you what ended up happening is I sat down with my partner once he had told me when he was going to retire and I said, great, I'm going to start. Once I, we came back from vacation and I had made that decision that I was going to do something new. I started all of that process. Um, uh, before we really finalized the old company, um, I started taking on projects just strictly underneath, um, yardstick studio, mm -hmm. um, doing the architecture and getting in touch with contractors and stuff that were going to be building those projects. So, um, I, I kind of stopped taking a salary from Colorado master builders while my partner was still finishing up what he was terming his yeah. last project. So you sort of over, so overlapped the over, two companies. I overlapped yep. them. So I was kind of up and running doing architecture. And, and that was another thing that was fortuitous because I was doing primarily most of the architecture for the firm. So I was able to, you know, just stop feeding stuff back into our construction side. Yeah. And I had a couple of renovation projects that I started feeding some contractor contacts that I had. Um, and, and so there, that, that part of the transition was fairly seamless. Um, and I was still working out of the old office. So I was there to help out, you know, wind things down as we finished up the shop and all of those sort of things. And then, and then be out on the project. I had actually designed the last project. It was a extraordinarily complex house up in the mountains. Um, so I had to be there to sort of consult even with my partner. Cause there was, there wasn't a square angle in that house that yeah. was 90 degrees. Um, so, so, so that transition, I, I would say that probably took six months, um, like of, you know, at first I was doing very little in the yardstick side and just kind of getting projects going and conceptual design and stuff, but was real, really primarily working. And then over that six month period, less and less stuff had to happen with, with, with Colorado master builders. Um, and so by the end we were really kind of almost working independently of one another. He was still finishing up like punch list items on that, that last project. And I was pretty much completely working full time in, in, in my new entity. Did you but we were still right next to each other in the office. And so you just sort of wrap things up. And as they finished, it just you shut that section down yeah. and sold what you we, needed to sell. And was there yeah. was there any sort of formal punctuation, whether, you know, legally and formally or just among, you know, among the group who are or they are or just you and your partner? Was there some sort of formal? This is the end. We're going to move on now. So. 
So, yeah, so um, we basically he he technically retired January 1st of, of 2017 was his formal announcement. So we were taking on no new projects from that point forward. And it was all just dragging through then finishing up the lasso. And I'll be honest with you, we just sold the forklift like a week and a half ago it was our last thing we had to sell. So the, the transition building. is the building. It already finished. sold like a few months. So yeah. And I, to get rid of the last few big, like three phase power tools out of the shop, we had to keep that forklift. And, um, and so, uh, Yes, we had sort of formal things like we're going to shut down. We're not taking on more revenue. Um, there were a few things with that project where we were still having to finish things up financially with that project. So we we drifted into 2018. Originally, the idea was to keep the the books and everything and close them down on January or December 31st of 17. Because we had stuff lingering, we just decided to keep it open one more year, mm-hmm. and that really took the pressure off. We could have done it much quicker, but we we yeah. sort of um, and and then as there wasn't work, I mean, we were fully transparent with all of our employees once he had made that decision, and so um, we we uh, we told everybody well in advance, months in advance, that this was coming, and um, so I felt like we did. You know, it's it's always difficult to let people go, um, but we felt like, and we gave them. I think, I think everybody got like a month's extra pay when they left. Um, and then, uh, some of the guys in the shop got to take some of the tools. Yeah, go ahead and take it. You've been using that for eight years. More yours than mine. It's yours, (laughs) you know? And, um, and then, uh, we did have a, uh, one, one of, uh, of my interns, he, stayed on. Um, and he's actually framing houses now with another company. Um, but he stayed on and we sort of, we started transitioning him to a 1099 Mm -hmm. sort of thing where we were just, Hey, I need you to come down on Saturday and help clean out this and move a bunch of stuff. And, um, so that was kind of the way we kind of kept things going too. uh, is sort of transitioned from more of a formal employee to a guy just coming down, helping God, we got to, move all these bookcases and throw them in the dumpster or sell them. Um, and so, yeah, so I'd say it took about six months of real transition. And then now financially, it's just sort of closing down those books. I mean, that's kind of really the hardest part. I think is just making sure everything kind of gets shut down. Um, one of the things there's 25 years of papers to shred. So we got one of those companies to come in and, and, and do all that and decided which, uh, we spent a weekend deciding which things we should still save mm-hmm. because we have clients that I'll still be working with as yardstick. And I have clients that call me that I've built a project 25 years ago for. Yeah. Um, and there's some legal documents that you have to keep just. Yeah. On, most on things record. are like seven yeah. years. Um, yeah. but, but we like, like I just had a guy call that, that we did a, did a kitchen for him probably 15, 18 years ago. And they called me like, Hey, that the dishwasher died. <laughs> what was that dishwasher we had? Where'd you get it? You know, and I'm, I look it up and yeah, here you go. So they, they kind of keep the count on us to be their sort of archive, yep. of, even, though, even though they should have it somewhere. Um, so in that, I think our clients, you know, that's one of the th- reasons why we've been so busy is because we do do stuff like that for our clients and yeah. they know, they know who to call. So, um, yeah, so we've got, I'll, I'll be honest, we've whittled it down. I've got four file drawers of papers is it after all those years. Um, I basically, any drawings that I had, to be honest, we were mostly digital Mm -hmm. towards the end there. 
uh, for the most part, I very rarely print out full sets of drawings anymore until it's ready. Denver is one of the few municipalities you still have to submit the hard copy um, that I work in. And uh, so that's about the only time I print hard copies anymore is for submittal. Yeah. Um, so that makes it easier not having to throw away too much of the new stuff. Everything, my last, like, say, I'd say f- five or eight years is, you know, all my drawings are on the computer. Right. So, uh, what, so what are you, what are you doing now at Yardstick? Okay. So, so what I decided to do was I have, I found out one of my most valuable resources and I, it didn't occur to me until I started thinking about how I was going to function as a company. One of my valuable resources that I've accumulated over the years is actually all of my contacts. Um, the thousands and thousands of people that I've worked with as a contractor and an architect that now I have available to me is like a massive database of resources. Yeah, um, your, I've got your network. I at my networking that I'm, that I'm doing from all, all sides. Like I started recontacting everybody. Um, and that's probably what made it trigger with me that it was a valuable resource is I just started emailing and calling people and going through my database. Like, Oh, I haven't talked to that guy in four or five years. I should tell him I'm moving over and get him my new email address. And, um, then I started getting calls from those guys. Like, Oh, you're doing architecture. I haven't talked to you in five years. Oh yeah, here, I got this client that's looking to do it. So I started getting, you know, it's a two way street. Um, and so that was that, that I'm like, God, that's, and to be fair, that's a lot of fun. Uh, I love, you know, I'll go call a guy and I haven't talked to him in five years and Hey, let's go grab coffee. And I enjoy that. So, um, it's, it's kind of allowed me to get back into that one-on-one personal touch, not only with my clients, but with, with, with the people I work with. Um, but like I had said, I really love the design build delivery method. So what I've kind of done is um, I've got like eight contractors that I've been working with here in Denver that I've known through the years. And I know, you know, they were pretty much my competitors. They do very high quality work. Um, and there's a range of them. Some of them have guys that the work is at a certain level, but they're quick. And then there's other guys that are just, you know, they're very expensive, but that's the quality of work. So I kind of picked like those guys based on given myself a range of people to introduce my clients to. Um, And so now what I've kind of done is taken all that design build methodology and tried to work it so that um, I I work with my clients through schematic design and partway through design development, uh, basically through when like say structural engineering would be getting going so that there's something tangible that a contractor could look at to start to get their head around a project and I start introducing various contractors that I think might work well with the client to those clients. And um, and so that has been working for the last year really well. Um, they're, they're getting to know these contractors earlier on, vet them out, talk to different guys. And then what, I, what I've been doing is having them get under sort of an initial – budgeting contract with the different contractors have different way they structure their, their, their payments and stuff. But, um, it was another thing as a builder that bugged me all those years is that clients expect all that bidding and budgeting for free. Um, and you know, we always competitively bid stuff and, and, and it just got under my skin that, you know, there could take a month, you know, of work. And then they go and find somebody that was significantly cheaper, but never an apples to apples comparison and start beating you up on it. Um, so now what I do is I say, look, 
We will work diligently to keep the price as low as we possibly can. It's more important that you have a very comfortable relationship with that contractor that you select. So let's meet a bunch of them. Let's go have coffee. Let's talk about it. We can talk about the overall project and how they might manage it. And once you feel comfortable with one of them, um, let's get them under contract to help work this budget all the way through. So basically what I call DD2, the second half of my design development when the clients are selecting all the fixtures and finishes and FF&E basically, um, I'm I'm working with a contractor. They're seeing those drawings develop. And, um, and, And as a growing up as a framer, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can do various details. So when they start to see stuff, I'm like, Hey, you know, Brian, what do you want this to look like on, you know, your rim joist detail? (laughs) Like, I don't want to have to dictate if it gets me the same product at at the end, let's, I'll cater these CDs to your, your experiences and what you guys are comfortable doing. And that also has efficiencies in economy, because if I'm not having them do something they're not comfortable with, they're they're going to be much faster, quicker, and it's going to be much smoother. So I think those contractors now really appreciate that, one, I have a builder's background, but also I'm not that architect coming in here. You will build – because I think they get that a lot. You, you'll build this right how I drew it. Yeah. And I get it. I don't know everything, and I, I'm always learning new stuff. I've never – stopped learning new little tricks and, and different ways to do things on the construction side. So, um, how, how much of your, your construction background, uh, benefits you in not only the construction phase of what you do, but also with the credibility with your clients, when you, when you want to, uh, suggest to them that they want to move ahead with a contractor rather than bidding it out, how much of that experience in the construction side do you think influences your client to make that decision and trust you in that moment? Um, you know, I can't even, there's no way to overstate the value of having construction experience as an architect I, in all aspects of it. I don't know exactly how much that influences my newer clients because they don't have quite as much experience me as a builder. Like some of my clients I'm working with currently, I've worked with for 15 years right now, the one I'm working with right now. Um, so they know me as a builder too. So they trusted me inherently with, I mean, I'm, I went to their daughter's wedding, you know, so it was like, you know, so I build levels of trust like that. So they would, you know, um, my new clients, I mean, I do, I do tell them that I was a design builder and I have construction experience. Um, and so if that, uh, but as I guide them through that, uh, the other thing is having that other company or entity or uh, as the builder, um, you know, we talk about the language that we're going to use with the clients before we go talk to the clients um, and how we might structure this particular project. So so again, that level of trust is reinforced by hearing it from a so-called third party. You know, the yeah. contractor comes in and just reinforces what I've told the client. So it's almost validating sort of what I'm telling them um, without them going out there on the Internet and calling some hack who just tells them, you know, something completely opposite, who's not going to give them the quality and the service that we would give them as a team. Yeah. So um, so and I guess that's part of the biggest thing that we focus on is we're a team, you know, um, and that's the other thing I think. Uh, that I do really well with these guys. You know, we have a relationship. Um, some of these guys I'm just starting working with, but we've known each other for years. But we all come in and I say, look, the, the, we are a team going into this project. The client has selected you. Um, therefore, the client, I, I kind of have some rules I put down with them. Client never hears about any problems, ever. You'd never call the client if you have an issue. Um, because I want this to be a, as 
good of an experience as it can possibly be. Um, And so that's the golden rule is I don't care what it is. We'll work it out. I'll pay for it if it has to be that way. But the client never hears about any little problems that pop up. um, You know, now I don't know if that puts us in sort of an awkward position. If there's, you know, obviously if something big came up, we'd we'd have to involve a client. Yeah, it's all selective. But as a general rule... That, yeah. that helps. I want I want that client to go away going, God, this thing just went so smooth because every client hears all the nightmare contractor right. stories. And so that one client going out and telling a couple of their neighbors how this thing went smooth and came in on time and on budget and was just perfectly. Yeah. Now, they don't know all the chaos that happened in the background, right. <laughs> So, but they don't need to um, because most of the time they don't really understand how troublesome that problem could it be and they and most clients just blow things out of proportion um like your doors are a week late or something you know and then they start freaking out and you got to call that guy and you're gonna gonna sue him well they don't have the experience and so they think every every little problem is is a major crisis Right. And so that's kind of one of the biggest things that I've done with now working with contract because that never happened while we were the GCs. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why our clients like working with us so much because they didn't ever have that bickering. Right. Um, I just talked to a, a buddy of mine who is an architect that he he had somehow forgotten to detail some sort of corbel element. I don't know exactly how how it was. It, it might have been a discussion we had on Entree Architect. And the contractor went immediately to the client to say, I'm going to have to charge you like, you know, $4,000 to do this change order because the architect forgot it. And the client went immediately to the architect and and said, you're going to pay for this because you forgot it. And, you know, that's a significant portion of his billable services. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um I said, and I told him flat out, I said, that client should have never heard about that. That contractor should have come right. to you. You should have said, I'll come down there on Saturday and help you put those corbels in and I'll pay you whatever it takes for materials. Yeah. Let's just work it out because <laughs> I'll tell you, know, and I told him, I said, neither of you guys will ever get a job from that client again because right. here you are fighting over yep. him. There are many uh, times throughout my career where I've bought things that were not mine to buy. And I looked at it as a marketing budget. I put it right there in the marketing budget that I, I, I bought that vanity that was wrong because I didn't want the client to ever hear about it. I didn't want it to be a problem. And so I paid for it. And then when I put it into my books, I said, okay, that's marketing. I made sure that, that, uh, yep. you know, that the client was happy. That was my way of making sure the client was happy. And the client went and told everybody how happy they were because they didn't know there was any problems. Right. Exactly. Well, that's what the thing is. I said, okay, so if that guy was going to charge four grand, that was a change order. So there's a significant markup on it. I'm guessing you're talking about two grand worth of stuff out of your pocket. How much is two grand worth in comparison to losing a client and never getting a referral from that client? That's probably the best two grand of advertising you could ever spend if, if right. you looked at it on a, on a, on a long-term basis. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I, and that's why I kind of say that to the contractors right up front. I said, everything comes through me. Yeah. And that is the other thing is I stay on sort of as a, I, I do stay on through the construction. Um, I, I have, you know, I actually use your contract, but I have the times that I've put in there that I will come out during certain like key points during construction to do observations. Um, but that I'm always around to answer questions. Um, I'm not going to disappear. And for the most part, the clients, if they have any questions or anything, they, they kind of go through me. Now they'll, they'll develop the relationships with the contractors. So they become friends as well. But, um, 
I, I'm asked to be kept in the loop with any any decisions that are made. Um, because I've also heard of the side where the contractors out there with the client, they make a change and then it causes a problem down the road. And then all of a sudden you get sucked back in because right. they didn't realize all the, 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 the tangential things that that could affect, yeah. um, that simple change. So, so I'm, I'm to back to like what I'm doing right now. I kind of still think of it as a design build yeah. methodology of delivery, except, um, I've, I'm working with contractors that they take care of their businesses and run their businesses. Um, and I'm not having to oversee that and they work for other architects too. And they, you know, they work on other projects, so they're not all beholden to me. So during those downtimes when I'm not feeding them drawings, I don't have to worry about keeping their employees busy. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so, uh, it, I think it allows a lot more flexibility. Yeah. It sounds like a great model. It sounds like you're in a great place now, you know, both professionally and personally. It's, it, it uh, uh, it's, it's a great story. I, I want, I, I was going to ask you my one final question to wrap things up, okay. but instead of that, instead of that, cause you asked, you answered that question in the last episode and you okay. can answer it again if you want to. But what I want to finish up with is maybe, you know, I know there are uh, many architects listening to this episode specifically because they saw the title and they, and they wanted, they wanted to hear your story and they are interested in becoming design build architects. So what is your advice to those people who are listening, who are now practicing as traditional architects, who do want to move to that design build firm? If you were going to do it all over again, how, yeah. what is your advice to those, to those architects? Um, I would say sit down and write out that business model. Um, like how many employees are you going to have to have and start with yourself as the architect and, and you can extrapolate right from that very first point. I am going, in order to make what I want to make as an architect, I'm going to have to turn out this much work. Okay, so how much work does that mean on the employee side, on the architecture? And then if you're taking that to the construction side, how many employees does it take to build that project? And then what does that look like when you don't get another architecture job? Um, that, you know, like that you did, you, you thought you'd have this job and the client delayed it. And then all of a sudden you've got this like, you know, chain of command going down, you know, this, this production line, I've got to have a guy on there that can go out and get another construction job, or I've got to let all those employees go. So seriously sit down and see how that structure works, knowing that they're, you're never going to have this continuous pipeline of work. I mean, all of us have been through the feast and famine part of this, this thing several times over, um, through our careers. And it just gets more and more logistically challenging. I never wanted to be now I'll be honest with you. There are many firms here in Denver that I know are hire and fire firms. They will ramp up and take on dozens of employees because they're super busy and have no qualms with letting all of those guys go the minute that job is over. I never wanted to be that sort of right. business owner. So maybe my personal preferences put a little bit more stress and, and logistically challenging problems onto a company like that. You know, if you're a hire and fire, I guess you can just go from huge to small and back up again as the economy dictates. I just never wanted to be that way. So maybe some of those restrictions are self-imposed. Yeah. Um, um, but I would say sit down and really map it out, um, and what each one of those employees salaries looks like and how much construction you have to do. I mean, I went down and that's what I was sort of doing as like, 
this just doesn't work um, in, in my mind's eye. It, I mean, did, I know it, it didn't work for, for where you wanted to go. Where I, mean, I wanted to be and what yeah, I wanted to do. Right. Um, I wanted to be a an architect and I wanted to be hands-on with my clients and I wanted to do um, really fun projects that inspired me. And what I felt like by the end was that I was taking on projects simply to keep my employees um, uh, employed. And it's like, maybe this is a project I wouldn't have normally taken, but hey, we this other guy bailed on us and we've got to do it because I need to feed all these families. Um, and that, that in my mind's eye really floated to the top as um, that's not a great way because those projects always end up being problems. Yeah. And you're, and you know, by the end you're going, God, why did I take this project on? I would I, I, we lost money on it and we could have done better if we just all took a vacation. <laughs> so I, I actually had that happen once. Yeah. And it's like, we should have just taken six weeks off and we'd better been financially better <laughs> off. Um, and so, so I would say sit down and, and really, when you're thinking about doing that and, um, uh, if you're if you're just jumping into it, you've got to find employees that are very rare, employees that can wear a lot of hats, because you're never going to have that one little hole that that person can, that peg can fit in perfectly. And if you're going to keep that person fully engaged, they have to be able to not only. I would say, like, if you're thinking about architecture and construction, they're not only going to have to be able to sit in the office and draft efficiently, but you may not have enough drafting to keep them busy. They're going to have to go out to the job site and help, you know, right. even if they're sweeping or hauling materials. Otherwise, they're going home. So and not every employee can do that. That's a that's a rare employee to find to somebody that can jump like that. Right. Um, so, so so put together a plan and in that plan have some sort of organizational chart that's that maps out the whole structure of what whole, you what you thing, hope this thing would that, look like and then right. start thinking about who those people are and how much they're going to cost and and because you want to do that before you're there. <laughs> yeah. You don't yeah. want to have all those people and all those jobs and all those responsibilities and have no structure or organization around it. Uh, it'll just be frustrating. And, and I, I think it would it sets you up to where I realize now that's not to be saying that it won't go on. These things sort of tend to take on their life yeah. of their own. And if you're super, like like right now, I think you're going to be super, super busy and you could probably make it happen. It's when the things aren't busy that the problems start to really flow to the top. Yeah. And uh, you have to have you have to plan for that because um, it's coming. I mean, it's going to it's been here before and it's going to come again. Who knows when it's going to be. But yeah. um, so I. That being said, the way that one of the other reasons is that I went to what I'm doing now is it's it's much more flexible, um, you know, with with me as really the only moving part that I'm financially beholden to. Um, you know, you do get relationships with these contractors and you got to tell them that, hey, this is coming this date. We're going in for permits. So there are some responsibilities there, but the the pressure is, you know, a fractional of what it was before. Right. Um, right. and, and it gives you a lot more flexibility, um, to just, uh, you, you know, um, and so I can take on as much or as little work as I really need to, or want to right now. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the, now really quick, I don't want to get into, I know you got to wrap, you got to bundle this into a certain time frame. One of the things I am talking about doing in order to, because there is this sort of, ups and downs of this is I've been talking to several of my architecture friends who also run small firms. All of them are just strictly architecture, not design build. Um, and we've talked about putting together, I don't know what we're going to call it, a consortium mm -hmm. 
that um, we kind of come together collaboratively, maybe meet like once a month or just regularly and start talking about and being able to um, share interns um, amongst the group. Um, now, we don't know how that will financially be set up if if it's just a very loose structure of, uh, you know, but we thought that had a lot of appealing aspects is one, we don't always have times to keep somebody employed full time. And then two, if you're sort of somebody going through the IDP program or something, and you're an intern looking to look for experience rather than going and signing on with like one firm, you know, you might have 10 or 12 yeah, different that's interesting. And so we're, we don't know how that's structured, but I'll have to keep you informed. Yes. Yeah. Well, you'll have uh, you back and talk about it. And how, yeah. once you have it figured out, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, because if I were an intern coming out of school right now and I had the chance to like work underneath maybe 12 yeah. different architects that had different viewpoints on the way, that, I think you just your experience level is just that much greater than yeah. working for the one guy for, you know, a year or three or whatever it takes these days to get through yeah. the whole thing. That would be a so, great opportunity. Um, so anyway, I'll have to let you know. But that is one way that I think I could help expand my capabilities when I do get that burst of workload. If I know that there's these people out there that can help me, you know, hey, I've got like five interns I can pull in and I reach out to the group and say, hey, I've got four weeks for you guys of work. Um, you know, let me know how much you charge me. Yeah, right, <laughs> and right. So, um, so anyway, so that's that's where I'm at. And so far, it's been great. I mean, moving home has been a challenge. You and I talked about this a little earlier. Um, shifting from an office with 18 people in it to just myself. Um probably talk to myself a little more than I should, or <laughs> this to reasonably help me. Um, so, so that has been challenging going this direction. Um, making sure that I get out of the, the office. Um, and I set up a legit office here. It's separate from the rest of the house. So it's really, I go to work in the morning. I'm not working in my pajamas. I've never been that kind of guy, but, um, making sure my meetings are scheduled outside of the house has been another one too, because you just don't have that office in the conference room and all right. those kind of things. So those little logistical things. So if anybody's thinking about going the other way, <laughs> those are the type of things that's a, a whole nother, you know, part of my life. And, and it's been fun. And, and the, I think the other thing is it's been challenging, which also is something that I enjoy. Um, you know, it, I get bored with stuff that I've, you know, and, th and then I lose interest in it and I like to keep being challenged. Yeah. So it's a great story. I, I am, I, I appreciate it. And, and I'm honored that you, have opened up with us here to sort of tell us that story. Um, I'm sure that the people who are listening have learned a lot. Uh, and so I appreciate you sharing well, that story. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I, you know, you're the first person I've had a chance to discuss it with, um, you know, and if anybody has any feedback or if you do, uh, I'm, you know, it's a new thing. It's a new path that I've chosen. Um, and, uh, I don't know where to lead so far. It's been very good. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll post the episode at, uh, entrearchitect.com slash episode 246. It'll also be posted in the uh, Facebook group at the Entree Architect community so people can reach out to Rod there and, and talk to him, ask him any questions you might have. On the web, it's yardstickstudio.com. He's Yardstick Studio at LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, and so, Rod Kaczynski, thank you very much for joining us here and for sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Mark, thanks so much. It's been, it's been a fun and uh, been a pleasure speaking with you. So are you considering going into design build, moving from your traditional practice to, to become a design build architecture firm? This is the episode to share with anybody you know who might be considering that. You know, Rod gave us a lot of great information, a lot of ways that it could be done, it should be done, and maybe it shouldn't be done. Definitely share this one. This is entrearchitect.com slash episode 246.
entrearchitect.com slash episode 246. Please share that. That's the way we're growing around here. And check out Entree Architect Membership, a new masterclass expert training webinar every month. Every month, you're going to get another new webinar with an expert giving you some valuable information that can transform your business and access the entire archive of training sessions. There's now more than 35 of them covering topics for architects in business, leadership, and life. Access to all our business resources, including hybrid proposal and the foundation's documents. That's more than 50 business forms and templates and checklists. Access to all our digital courses, including the Get Focused Powerful Productivity course and an invitation to join our private Entree Architect member forum powered by Slack. That's training, resources, and a private community for small firm architects. That is Entree Architect membership. Join hundreds of your fellow entrepreneur architects and me at Entree Architect membership. Gain full instant access today, free for 30 days at EntreeArchitect.com. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to go build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this. I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Call.
calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.